Hello, everyone. Thank you for attending Gilead Sciences second quarter 2023 earnings conference call. My name is Sierra, and I'll be your moderator today. All lines will be muted during the presentation portion of the call with an opportunity for questions and answers at the end. If you would like to ask a question, press star one on your telephone keypad. I would now like to pass the conference over to our host, Jackie Ross, VP of Investor Relations. Please proceed. Thank you, operator, and good afternoon, everyone. Just after market closed today, we issued a press release with earnings results for the second quarter of 2023. The press release, slides, and supplementary data are available on the investors section of our website at gilead.com. The speakers on today's call will be our Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Daniel O'Day, our Chief Commercial Officer, Joanna Mercier, our Chief Medical Officer, Murdad Parsi, and our Chief Financial Officer, Andrew Dickinson. After that, we'll open the call to Q&A, where the team will be joined by Cindy Peretti, the Executive Vice President of KITE. Before we get started, let me remind you that we will be making forward-looking statements, including those related to Gilead's business, financial condition and results of operations, plans and expectations with respect to products, product candidates, corporate strategy, business and operations, financial projections and the use of capital, and 2023 financial guidance, all of which involve certain assumptions, risks, and uncertainties that are beyond our control and could cause actual results to differ materially from these statements. A description of these risks can be found in the earnings press release and our latest SEC disclosure documents. All forward-looking statements are based on information currently available to Gilead, and Gilead assumes no obligation to update any such forward-looking statements. Non-GAAP financial measures will be used to help you understand the company's underlying business performance. The GAAP to non-GAAP reconciliations are provided in the earnings press release, in our supplementary data sheet, as well as on the Gilead website. With that, I'll turn the call over to Dan. Thank you, Jackie, and good afternoon, everyone. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to catch up with Gilead in the midst of a busy earnings period. This was another very strong quarter for Gilead in terms of both business performance and clinical execution. Thank you to the Gilead teams that drove this progress with their dedication to improving the health of individuals and communities worldwide. Total product sales, excluding Bicklery, grew 11% year over year and closed a very strong first half performance in the base business. As we look to the full year, we are increasing guidance for total product sales. We now expect even stronger growth in our base business of 65 to 8%, which is expected to more than offset our revised expectations for Viclary. As a result, our guidance for base business product sales has increased $550 million at the midpoint. In the second quarter, HIV contributed about two-thirds of the $615 million growth in our core business, growing 9% year-over-year. Oncology grew 38% year-over-year, and with product sales of $728 million in the second quarter, now has an annual run rate of approximately $3 billion. Moving to clinical progress, the second quarter was very active on the regulatory front, with approvals, positive opinions, or recommendations for six of our therapies, Tradelvi, Yaskarta, Tacardis, Sunlenka, Hepcludex, and Viclury. This regulatory progress highlights the strength of our increasingly diverse portfolio. It also reflects the ability of our teams to successfully navigate regulatory processes across the therapeutic areas and key geographies with speed and efficiency. In addition to this progress, we shared positive pipeline updates at ASCO, which included overall survival data for Yaskarta, the only large B-cell lymphoma cell therapy to demonstrate significant overall survival benefit versus standard of care in the second-line setting, promising Trodelvi data in endometrial cancer, reinforcing our belief in Trodelvi as a cornerstone asset with pan-tumor potential, and updated TIGIT data from the full study population of ARC-7, 
establishing donvanilumab's proof of concept in lung cancer. We have also shared long-term data for Hepcludex for hepatitis delta virus, showing improved response rates at week 96 compared to week 48. These data support new guidelines recommending Hepcludex for people living with chronic HDV in the EU. With a broad portfolio of novel mechanisms and a commitment to pursuing areas of high unmet need, we know that some pipeline setbacks are to be expected. As we announced last month, we have discontinued the phase three enhanced study in higher risk MDS due to futility in a second interim analysis. As you know, MDS is one of the most intractable forms of blood cancer, and we are disappointed that the study was not able to deliver new hope for patients with the disease. We will take a thorough data-driven approach regarding next steps as we carry out the ongoing analysis of megrolimab. Overall, we were executing well on our clinical commitments, and our current performance speaks to the strength of our combined oncology portfolio. We have a rich pipeline of activity in the second half, including an initial look at a subset of Evoco 2 data on Trodelvi plus Pembro in first-line metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Before I hand over to Joanna, I'd like to welcome Cindy Peretti, our head of cell therapy, to our first Gilead Earnings Conference call. Cindy has now been with Gilead for two months and brings a wealth of oncology and leadership experience from Roche Foundation Medicine and the Sarah Cannon Research Institute. We're delighted to have Cindy join our Gilead leadership team, and it's great to have her with us on the call today. With that, I'll hand the call over to Joanna for a discussion of our commercial results. Joanna? Thanks, Dan, and good afternoon, everyone. The second quarter was another strong quarter for Gilead with solid performance across our commercial portfolio, leading to an increase in our full-year expectations for both the base and overall business. For the second quarter of 2023, as shown on slide seven, total product sales, excluding Vicklery, grew 11% year-over-year to 6.3 billion, with year-over-year growth in each of our core franchises. This represents the seventh consecutive quarter of year-over-year growth for our base business reinforcing the strength of our virology and oncology portfolios. This strong growth more than offset the decline in Viclary sales, which were as expected given the lower hospitalizations. Altogether, total product sales, including Viclary, was $6.6 billion, up 7% year over year. Starting with HIV on slide eight, second quarter sales of $4.6 billion were up 9% year over year, driven by higher average realized price in part due to channel mix and higher demand, partially offset by lower channel inventory. Quarter over quarter, sales were up 10%, driven by favorable pricing and inventory build, following the typical first quarter dynamics. Overall, the global HIV treatment market continues to grow in line with our expectations of 2 to 3% annually. Specifically, in the U.S., the market overall grew more than 2% in the first half of the year compared to the first half of 2022, reflecting growth in the non-retail channels more than offsetting a roughly flat retail market. HIV product sales grew 11% in the first half of 2023 compared to the first half of 2022, helped by favorable pricing dynamics, including the phasing of certain government purchases and channel mix. Looking forward, we expect HIV product sales growth to more closely mirror market growth in the second half. Therefore, we're increasing our full-year expectations for HIV and now expect full-year HIV product growth for 2023 to be modestly higher than the 5% we reported in 2022. Turning to slide nine, Victarvi sales of $3 billion were up 17% year over year, driven by higher demand and favorable pricing dynamics partially offset by lower channel inventory. With the market share up almost 3% year over year in the US, Victarvi remains the treatment of choice for HIV with more than 46% market share. This represents the 20th consecutive quarter of share gains in the US with a year over year growth rate that has once again outpaced new and existing regimens. Similarly, we continue to see solid share gains across other major markets 
as Victarvi maintains its leading position for new starts, as well as for those switching therapies. Discovi sales were $516 million, up 12% year-over-year. With awareness and utilization of HIV prevention higher than ever, the U.S. market grew once again. And amidst this growth, we're pleased to see strong demand for Discovi for PrEP, up 14% year-over-year in the U.S., with a strong market share that has remained over 40%. With this strong foundation, we look forward to potentially adding lenacapavir as a six-monthly subcutaneous option for prevention as early as 2025. Moving to the liver disease portfolio on slide 10, sales were up 4% year-over-year and 5% quarter-over-quarter to $711 million. We remain committed to eliminating HCV globally with our market-leading portfolio of medicines, and our efforts to increase awareness contributed to higher patient starts in the U.S., Europe, and Asia in the second quarter. HBV and HDV also contributed to growth in the liver disease portfolio driven by higher demand. Liver disease remains an important part of our portfolio, benefiting hundreds of thousands of patients. We're pleased to have received full marketing authorization for Hepcludex in HDV in Europe, a further recognition of the benefit this medicine brings to patients who have very limited therapeutic options. Across our portfolios, HCV, HBV, and HDV products, the liver disease contribution to our commercial performance continues to stabilize overall to a run rate of more than $2.5 billion in sales a year. On to slide 11. McClurry sales declined in the second quarter, as expected, reflecting lower hospitalization rates, with sales of $256 million, down 43% year-over-year. For those patients hospitalized and treated for COVID-19, a majority continue to receive Veclury, a testament to Veclury's robust clinical profile. Most recently, this has included decisions by the US FDA and the European Commission to expand Veclury's indication to reach patients with renal impairment, including those on dialysis. Moving to oncology on slide 12, it is remarkable to observe that in less than five years, our oncology business has grown from less than $300 million and is now approaching an annualized run rate of $3 billion, with tens of thousands of patients treated with Gilead and Kite oncology therapies to date. Beyond our well-established leadership in cell therapy, we have the only trope 2 directed ADC on the market with Tridelvi, and combined, our oncology portfolio extends the options for patients in eight indications. Looking in more detail at Trudelvi on slide 13, sales were up 63% year-over-year and 17% sequentially to $260 million, representing an annual run rate that exceeds a billion dollars. We continue to be very pleased with the launch in pre-treated HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer with strong awareness of our approval in the U.S. We look forward to reaching even more patients in Europe following last week's marketing authorization from the European Commission. Additionally, we're beginning discussions with health authorities in Japan with plans to file for approval in metastatic triple negative breast cancer later this year. With a strong field force in place and robust data sets across multiple tumor types, Chidelvi remains well positioned to maintain and expand its reach. And Gilead continues to build on our experience in breast and bladder cancers with a view to other indications over time as the development program evolves. Turning to cell therapy on slide 14, sales in the second quarter were 469 million, up 27% year over year and 5% quarter over quarter. Yaskarta showed continued growth with sales up 29% year over year to 380 million, primarily driven by strong underlying demand in the second and third line settings for relapsed or refractory large B cell lymphoma, both in existing as well as new markets. Picarda sales were $88 million, up 21% year-over-year, reflecting increased demand for relapsed or refractory adult acute lymphoblastic leukemia, as well as mantle cell lymphoma, primarily outside of the U.S. We are excited about the opportunity ahead as the body of evidence supporting broader adoption of cell therapies continues to grow. The work that KITE has been leading to raise awareness and adoption of cell therapy will be accelerated by other providers as they ramp up their manufacturing capabilities. 
this overall expansion in supply will predictably impact our market share in the near term, but overall class share is the most important driver of our business over time. As cell therapy is offered and delivered to more patients, we are confident that kite cell therapies will remain differentiated in terms of our manufacturing reliability and efficacy. Wrapping up the second quarter, I'd like to acknowledge the commercial teams and our partners across Gilead and Kite that once again, delivered an extremely strong performance, reflecting both solid execution and the compelling portfolio of Gilead products that positively impacts millions of people around the world. And with that, I'll hand the call over to Murdad for an update on our pipeline. Murdad? Thank you, Joanna. I'm pleased to highlight the ongoing progress our teams have made with 64 ongoing clinical programs and 21 phase three trials. Notably, we presented multiple positive data readouts at medical conferences in the second quarter, such as updated overall survival data for Tridelby in pre-treated HR positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer, OS data for Yescarta in second line relapsed or refractory large B cell lymphoma, and long-term data from Belevertide in HDV. As we move into the second half of 2023, we remain focused on execution, investing in capabilities to increase our productivity and portfolio prioritization. We also look forward to sharing an update on Tradelvi and non-small cell lung cancer, including Evoco2 data at World Conference on Lung Cancer in September. Turning first to virology on slide 16, we're proud of the role Gilead has played in transforming HIV care. We continue to innovate based on our commitment to both the HIV community and to those who could benefit from a prevention regimen with our ongoing work to deliver new, effective, and convenient options. The unique profile of lenacapavir, our first-in-class capsid inhibitor, enables the eight prevention and treatment clinical programs we're focused on. In HIV treatment, the Artistry One trial evaluating an oral, once-daily bictegravir and lenacapavir combination regimen is progressing well. We expect to provide an update on the phase two portion of the study later this year. This novel regimen aims to provide an effective and simpler regimen for the six to 8% of virologically suppressed individuals who are currently on complex multi-tablet regimens to manage their HIV. We continue to advance in our goal of providing longer acting HIV treatment options through the development of lenacapavir combination regimens with integrase inhibitors, NRTIs, and NNRTI, as well as the phase two study of our two broadly neutralizing antibodies. In HIV prevention, recruitment for our phase three purpose one and two clinical trials, evaluating every six month single agent subcutaneous lenacapavir continues to exceed our expectations in the second quarter. We look forward to potentially providing a data update in the late 2024 to early 2025 timeframe as we target approval in late 2025. Moving on to slide 17, I'm pleased to note that the European Association for the Study of the Liver, or EASL, has updated its HDV guidelines to recommend that all patients in the EU with chronic HDV infection should be considered for antiviral treatment. Recently, Hepcludex was granted full approval by the European Commission and remains the only approved therapy for chronic HDV infection in the EU. The updated guidelines were supported by Hepcludex's 48-week data, which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in June. Gilead also presented data demonstrating that 96-week treatment with bulevertide improved biologic and biochemical responses with no evidence of treatment emergent resistance, including in those who were previously non or partial responders. These data reinforce our confidence in bulevertide and its potentially longer-term benefit for patients with HDV. As a reminder, bulevertide is not yet approved in the U.S. Turning to oncology on slide 18, Tradelvi remains the first and only approved TROPE-2-directed ADC with indications across three tumor types. It's also the only TROPE-2-directed ADC to show overall survival benefit versus chemotherapy in two tumor types. We've now treated over 20,000 patients and evaluated more than 2,300 patients in our clinical trials. Tradelvi's robust data set informs a well-characterized safety profile with low discontinuation rates observed across multiple indications and no required increasing monitoring for severe interstitial lung disease. At ASCO, we presented additional data demonstrating Tradelvi's potential, including in pretreated HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer, 
we presented the final analysis from our phase three Tropics O2 trial, supporting the marketing authorization we just received from the European Commission last week. In bladder cancer, we shared an analysis of Trophy U01, supporting Tridelby's efficacy in post-platinum, post-IO metastatic urothelial cancer across a range of trope 2 expression. With our accelerated approval in bladder cancer, we hope to provide a data update from the ongoing confirmatory phase three Tropics 04 trial and initiate global filings for Tridelby in metastatic urothelial cancer by the end of next year. In heavily pretreated endometrial cancer, we presented promising efficacy data from our phase two Tropics 03 basket trial, demonstrating the expanding pan tumor potential of Tridelby. Moving to slide 19, our comprehensive clinical development program in non-small cell lung cancer includes several signal-seeking and ongoing phase three clinical trials. We know non-small cell lung cancer is not only an area of significant unmet need as a number one cause of cancer-related deaths, but also an area we believe Tridelvi has the potential to transform standard of care as a combination partner to an IO backbone in the first-line setting, as well as a single agent in the post-IO setting. On slide 20, we highlight the growing number of lung-related catalysts. I'm particularly excited to highlight that we've added a new milestone with a preliminary readout from our Phase 2 EVOCO 2 trial at the World Conference on Lung Cancer. This study is evaluating Tridelby plus pembrolizumab with or without chemo in first-line non-small cell lung cancer. We'll be sharing data from the first two cohorts evaluating Tridelby in combination with Pembro in pdl one high and pdl one low patients. The abstract, expected to be released later in August, will be an initial subset of a small number of patients. Our presentation, scheduled for Sunday, September 10th at World Lung, will include data at a later cutoff date with more patients. Turning to dominilumab, or DOM, on slide 21, we presented data from the last interim analysis of the full 150 patients enrolled in the Phase two ARC-7 study at ASCO in June. The data continue to show consistent and clinically meaningful improvement in progression-free survival in first-line pdl one high non-small cell lung cancer when DOM, or FC-silent anti-TIGIT, is combined with an investigational anti-PD-1 agent as compared to the PD-1 inhibitor alone. These data form the basis for our DOM program encompassing phase three trials in first-line non-small cell lung cancer and upper GI cancers. Moving to cell therapy on slide 22, Yescarta continues to strengthen its position as a cell therapy of choice for large B-cell lymphoma. At ASCO in June, we presented overall survival data from a landmark phase three Zuma 7 trial of Yescarta and second-line relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma. At a median follow-up of four years, a one-time treatment with Yescarta demonstrated a statistically significant longer overall survival compared to standard of care, with a 27% reduction in risk of death, representing a 38% relative improvement. Moreover, the majority of the patients in the standard of care arm eventually received a cell therapy off protocol, and of those, 77% received Yescarta. Overall, Yescarta is the first treatment in nearly 30 years to demonstrate a significant improvement in survival for this patient population, and these data add to the growing body of evidence that position cell therapy is potentially curative in some populations. With a strong pipeline of six ongoing phase two and three trials across lines of therapy, new tumor types, and earlier stage assets, Kite continues to innovate and execute on expanding the potential benefit of cell therapies to new patients, both through internal or acquired innovation and through collaborations. We're working closely with one of these partners, Arcelix, to support their efforts regarding the Imagine One clinical hold. We remain confident in the therapeutic profile for CAR-T DDBCMA and the Imagine One trial based on the data demonstrated to date and share in Arcelix's commitment to delivering this novel therapy to multiple myeloma patients. Turning to slide 23, we highlight our progress against key clinical milestones for 2023 so far. We are, of course, disappointed by the outcome of the interim analysis of the enhanced trial evaluating magrolimab 
and higher risk MDS, given the need for treatment options. We will continue to monitor and report on the other migrolimab trials. Importantly, while not every trial will be positive, our efforts at building a well-diversified portfolio gives us multiple opportunities to improve the lives of patients. We're excited about our momentum in making oncology and inflammation important contributors to our future and continue to make strong progress on delivering our key clinical catalysts for this year. Beyond our near-term milestones, I'd also like to highlight our growing pipeline of early stage inflammation assets, including our oral alpha-4 beta-7 and the progression of our IRAC-4 inhibitor, adetacertib, into phase two, as well as the advancement of the BTLA agonist program from the MiroBio acquisition into phase one. We're excited by this differentiated inflammation pipeline and the potential to impact important gaps in the treatment of inflammatory diseases. Overall, we believe we have a very ambitious clinical portfolio that is well diversified across indication and stage. We look forward to updating you as we progress through 2023. With that, I'll hand the call over to Andy. Andy? Thank you, Merdad, and good afternoon, everyone. Turning to slide 25, and as you heard from Dan and Joanna, our base business continued to perform very well in the second quarter, with total product sales, excluding Veclury, up 11% year over year, driven by growth across all of our product families. FX was still a headwind, albeit more modest, impacting growth by approximately one percentage point. Total product sales were $6.6 billion, up 7% year over year, as strong execution in our base business, more than offset the lower Veclury sales, as well as FX impact of $82 million. Moving to the rest of the P&L, on a non-GAAP basis, on slide 26, product gross margin was 86.9%, up 131 basis points from last year. R&D was $1.4 billion, up 25% year over year, due to higher expenses associated with our broad clinical pipeline, including the acceleration of certain late-stage clinical studies. As a reminder, we have 21 ongoing phase three trials, highlighting the investment we continue to make in Gilead's near and long-term growth profile. As mentioned earlier this year, we will continue to manage expenses carefully. And in R&D, with a number of significant mid to late-stage trials ongoing, we'll continue to follow the science pivoting investment if and when the data warrants. Acquired IPR&D was $236 million, reflecting the Zinthera acquisition and expansion of the Arcus collaboration into inflammation, in addition to milestone payments associated with ongoing partnerships. SGNA was $1.8 billion, up 45% year over year, including the $525 million legal accrual for settlements with certain plaintiffs in the HIV antitrust litigation, as well as increased commercial activities in oncology and HIV. Excluding the legal settlement accrual, non-GAAP SGNA expense was $1.3 billion, up 4% year over year. Moving to tax, our effective tax rate in the second quarter was 21%. Our non-GAAP diluted earnings per share was $1.34 in the second quarter of 2023, including approximately 32 cents of expense associated with the legal settlement accrual, partially offset by higher product sales. This compared to $1.58 of earnings for the same period last year. Overall, we had a very strong first half, as highlighted on slide 27, with solid performance in each of our core franchises across virology and oncology, driving 13% year-over-year growth, excluding Veclury. Given these strong first half results, we have updated our full year sales guidance. Moving to slide 28, we now expect total product sales in the range of 26.3 to 26.7 billion, up from 26 to 26.5 billion previously. We expect total product sales, excluding Veclury, in the range of 24.6 to 25 billion, up from 24 to 24.5 billion previously. This new range represents growth of 6.5 to 8% for our base business year over year, compared to 4 to 6% previously. On Veclury, the second quarter and first half were below our internal expectations. 
Based on COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations to date, we have lowered our guidance for the full year to approximately $1.7 billion to bring second half expectations more in line with our first half experience. As a reminder, Vecluri is highly correlated with COVID-related hospitalizations, and as such, its utilization remains variable. We will share another update with you on our third quarter call. Moving to the rest of the P&L, we continue to expect non-GAAP gross margin to be approximately 86%. There is also no change to our non-GAAP R&D guidance, where we expect expenses to increase by a low double-digit percent compared to 2022. Reflecting the one-time legal settlement accrual of $525 million in the second quarter, we now expect non-GAAP SG&A expense to increase a high single-digit percent compared to 2022. Excluding this legal settlement accrual, non-GAAP SG&A expense for 2023 is expected to be down a low single-digit percent compared to 2022, consistent with our prior guidance. Non-GAAP acquired IPRD has been updated to reflect the Zintera acquisition and expanded Arcus collaboration, adding about $200 million or 17 cents per share. For 2023, we now expect acquired IPRD to be approximately $900 million, reflecting previously committed acquired IPRD amounts, as well as known milestone payments from existing collaborations. Similar to prior quarters, we will continue to include expected acquired IPRD expenses if we announce additional transactions over the course of the year. We now expect non-GAAP operating income in the range of 10.4 to $10.9 billion, or roughly 650 million lower at the midpoint due to the 525 million one-time legal settlement accrual and $200 million in additional acquired IPR&D expense, neither of which were reflected in our previous full year guidance. Moving to tax, we now expect our non-GAAP effective tax rate to be approximately 17%, reflecting an expected decrease in our tax reserves for the second half of the year. Altogether, we now expect non-GAAP diluted EPS in the range of $6.45 and $6.80 per share, down from $6.60 and $7 previously, as shown on slide 29. The chart illustrates the underlying strength of our business, with the higher product sales guidance flowing through to the bottom line, in addition to lower expected tax rate. This is, however, offset by both acquired IP R&D at 17 cents per share and the legal settlement accrual at 32 cents per share, a non-recurring cost. On a gap basis, we expect diluted EPS to be in the range of $4.50 and $4.85. Moving to slide 30, you can see that there is no change to our capital allocation priorities. We returned $1.1 billion to shareholders in the second quarter through our dividend and repurchase of shares. We believe we have built a strong pipeline that will enable Gilead to deliver near and long-term growth. And of course, we'll continue to remain opportunistic as we look to access high quality assets through partnerships or make smaller acquisitions in the normal course of business. We remain committed to growing our dividend and to using share repurchases primarily to offset equity dilution, although we will also be opportunistic from time to time. With that, I'll invite the operator to open the Q&A. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by one on your telephone keypad. To remove your question, press star followed by two. In addition, we will only be allowing one question from each analyst today, and if you are using a speakerphone, please remember to pick up your handset before asking a question. Our first question comes from Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Please proceed. Hey guys, uh, thanks so much for the question. Just had maybe a quick one for, uh, for, for Dan or, or for Andy. You guys have had an aspiration to, you know, to have about a third of total revenue uh, from hematology oncology. I wasn't sure how big of a role McGraw-Lamab played in those assumptions, and, and, and if it was a small amount, you know, where do you see opportunities in the pipeline that you think the street perhaps is underappreciating? Thank you very much. Yeah, hey, Jeff, I'll start and then turn it over to Andy, but uh, thank you very much for the question. Uh, I, I want to be clear that we continue to be on track to meet our goal of oncology representing one-third of our 2030 revenues, and that's on top of a, of a growing HIV uh, business overall. I'll, I'll just remind the team here that um, 
you know, our portfolio is very broad. It's more than doubled since a few years ago in quantity and, uh, and many fold on a quality risk adjusted basis as well. We have novel mechanisms and technologies and approaches across many indications uh, precisely to allow for the fact that not every clinical card is going to turn over favorably. And Andy, why don't, uh, I'll let you add on to that in terms of what we, you know, what our initial assumptions were around the third. Sure. Hi, hi Jeff. I'm good to hear from you, and thank you for the question. Um, you may recall that historically when we've talked about this, we've highlighted that that assumption is really tied to the cell therapy business and to Tradelvi, and that we have a you know, complete belief that we're going to get there based on those two franchises alone. Magrolimab and Tigit and the rest of the oncology pipeline provide additional upside. So um, just reiterating what Dan said, we continue to be on track to meet the goal of our oncology business representing a third of our total revenue by 2030. And we remain excited about the breadth of our oncology portfolio and the, the exceptional progress that you see in cell therapy and uh, Tridelvi, which combined, as you heard in the prepared remarks, are on track to, to produce $3 billion of revenue uh, roughly this year. Sierra, may we have our next question? Our next question comes from Chris Schott with J.P. Morgan. Please proceed. So on Tridelvi and the Evoke O2 data, can you just help set some expectations for the, the profile that we'll see from that at, at World Lung? I guess specifically, we'd just be interested in your thoughts on what we should anticipate in terms of the ILD profile in the setting, as well as your thoughts on a potential trope two expression biomarker driven approach that I think your competitor has alluded to post their data. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. Over to Murdad, please. Yeah, um, uh, we're looking forward to sharing those data. And as you can imagine, we're under embargo, so I can't share too many details. Um, until uh, the presentation comes up. And um, the abstract itself will, will come out, um, I, I think, in uh, mid-August, so very shortly. And that initial abstract will represent a, a relatively small data set from Evoco2, and then there'll be more data at the time of the presentation in September. So um, in terms of uh, what, what's coming. Um, in terms of ILD, across our, our programs, uh, including all the clinical trials, uh, we have not seen ILD to date. Um, we don't screen for ILD in our clinical trials, uh, nor in uh, the clinical practice. So um, at this time, uh, we have not seen anything from ILD, uh, in an ILD standpoint. And then in terms of trope 2 expression, um, you know, as a matter of course, we are measuring trope 2 expression in, uh, in all of our trials as we go forward and looking to see if we see uh, correlations between trope 2 expression and um, efficacy. And to date, we've not seen uh, a correlation. We've seen great efficacy across trope 2 expression levels in the tumors that we've studied to date. Now, that may change with different tumor types. Um, but to date, we have not seen a correlation with TROP2 expression levels. So we're optimistic for that to, keep, uh, to continue. Uh, I would not expect to see TROP2 data in this upcoming data set. Um, it's, uh, this is an early data set, and those data usually trail, um, the TROP2 expression data usually trail the clinical trials. Thank you. May we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Tyler Van Buren with TD Cowan. Please proceed. Hey guys, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. Um, another one on Trodelby. It looks like we're seeing a bit of a quarter over quarter inflection. But would you say this is attributed primarily to the HR positive uh, HER2 negative launch? And do you believe this is the beginning of a new sustainable trend? Great, Tyler. Yeah, over to Joanna, please. Hi, Tyler. Um, yeah, we're very pleased with the results and the early signs that we've seen from the recent launch of HR-positive HER2-negative in the U.S. Um, we've definitely seen, um, as you say, an inflection point. So we've seen a really strong uptake in, um, in this setting. We've also kind of building on the foundation of triple negative breast cancer, where we are the standard of care here as well. And we're excited about the fact that Europe, the EC, just gave um, approval for HR-positive HER2-negative in Europe. So building on uh, the success of TNBC, and we've seen strong uptake in Europe for TNBC. So there's also a piece of that for the Tridel V business performance. 
Um, and we're excited to see what we can do with HR positive HER2 negative in Europe as well. So we do think this is uh, definitely on the right path from a growth standpoint and uh, very exciting times for Chidelby and breast cancer patients. Thank you, Sierra. May we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Terrence Flynn with Morgan Stanley. Please proceed. Hi, thanks so much for taking the question. Uh, this one's for Joanna. Um, I read that there's uh, CMS could propose to have Medicare cover PrEP. Just wondering um, if you have any insight on the likelihood here and timing, and then could you help us think about the size of that population? Thank you. Yeah, so thanks for the question. Um, I, I think you're referring to the national coverage determination, the NCD, right, for prevention, for PrEP? Yes, I'm assuming, um, and um, and that's really just because the um, right now it currently only supports oral drugs, and there's an opportunity for us to add injectable drugs, and I think that was a V request to CMS, and so we're very supportive, of course. Um, we believe PrEP is actually quite central to ending HIV epidemic and fully fully support the CMS proposal. As from a timing standpoint. Um, that's probably um, hopefully in the in the coming quarters that we should see something come out, but um, I don't have details on that. But I do think it can only help what we're trying to do in HIV prevention, let alone support as we, we think of launching the potential launch for lenocapavir in 2025. Thank you. May we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Robin Karnoskas with Truist. Please proceed. Hi, this is Bilal Jahangiri on for Robin. Um, thanks for taking our uh, question and congrats on all the progress. Um, I had a question about uh, TIGIT. Um, and since you began the ARC studies, have you learned anything by way of expression of TIGIT, CD155, or any other potential prognostic biomarkers in the tumor microenvironment that would warrant further development of DOM in the upright GI indications, even if Sky1 were to fail? Um, thanks for the question. If I, as I understand it, I think the question is around uh, predictors of response as it relates to the upper GI uh, setting. Uh, what I would say is we, we, of course, are following biomarkers, um, as I mentioned with TREP2, we'll, we are looking for biomarkers of responsiveness to um, various markers that could predict TIGIT responsiveness. Uh, our, our interest in the upper GI um, is of course, based on um, uh, TIGIT expression levels in tumor samples and things like that outside of the clinical trials, but more uh, based on uh, clinical data that, that, um, that we've seen and others have seen for the efficacy of TIGIT in uh, upper GI tumors. And so we'll, of course, across the programs, be looking for uh, any potential markers for pre predictive response. Thank you. May we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Brian Abrams with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed. Hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my question and uh, congrats on the quarter. Um, maybe a question on, on Magrolimab. Um, do you have any preliminary thoughts on you know, why the trial uh, in high-risk MDS uh, was not successful, just given the encouraging early data? And I guess which indications uh, are you most optimistic the drug could still be successful in going forward? Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Um, well, I mean, I think um, you can imagine we are we we are looking uh, thoroughly at the data, um, and the the trigger for this was a futility analysis uh, centered on overall survival. Um, we will, of course, update uh, as we generate data um, and look at all those. We'll we'll um, make those uh, that information publicly available. Um, uh, to your point, the um, we're fairly far along in our AML trials, and as you know, we have some uh, studies going on in solid tumors, and we believe that um, there are a number of factors that could uh, that determine success or failure in these various uh, settings, and, and uh, each of these settings it represents a, a slightly different biological um, experiment. So um, we are going to continue to look broadly at um, at what 
you know, what we've learned from the uh, initial data. We're going to continue to talk with uh, the regulators and the IRBs in, in the near term. And then uh, we'll update you as, um, as we proceed down that path with, uh, with where we're going to go. Um, but we continue our efforts right now, hoping that uh, megrolimab could have um, an effect in other diseases outside of MDS. MDS is a uniquely challenging um, indication, and, and we feel, you know, we were hoping we could bring a benefit to those patients, and we're disappointed that we can't do that. May we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Carter Gould with Barclays. Please proceed. Great. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, for taking the question. Um, as you talked about sort of the hematology portfolio, one thing you guys didn't talk on much today is sort of the DDBCMA and and it being on clinical hold. Your your partner has talked about uh, investigator conduct and and bridging therapy being issues. Are you sort of in agreement with that characterization? And to what extent is sort of uh, you know timely uh, addressing of the clinical hold critical to your underlying thesis behind the product? Thank you. Thanks, Carter. This gives us a chance, well, all a chance to hear from Cindy for the first time with Gilead. So, Cindy, over to you, please. Thanks a lot, Carter, for the question. I think first it might be helpful if I can provide a little context associated with the clinical hold. Um, on June 16th, the FDA did notify Arcelix that it was placing the CAR-CD-BCMA IND on clinical hold, and that was following a patient death. The patient was treated with the DDBCMA, our, our CAR-T, and despite becoming ineligible for treatment under the trial protocol, um, due to the fact that they developed a secondary malignancy um, before the time of infusion, so they would have not um, been allowed technically to be on protocol. After infusing that patient, they subsequently um, mismanaged, I would say, the manner in which the protocol specifies treatment of adverse events. and so. We are continuing to partner with Arcelix on this. We are very confident in the molecule. We're confident in the Imagine One study design, and we're looking at ways in which we can partner with Arcelix to enhance protocol adherence. All of the clinical sites to date have been retrained so that we can, again, ensure that protocol adherence. And additionally, the FDA has allowed Arcelix to dose patients who had gone through lymphodepletion while on clinical hold. So, Again, we remain confident that the therapeutic profile of DD, BCMA, CAR-T, and the IMAGINE-1 trial um, is going to be successful, I think, based on the data demonstrated to date. So our commitment in delivering that therapy to patients globally is still there for multiple myeloma. Thank you. Sierra, may we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Sylvine Richter with Goldman Sachs. Please proceed. Oh, Salvi, Salvin, we're not we're not hearing you very well. Maybe just try try one more time. Salvi, maybe you can try and dial in on a different line. Hey, Salvin, are you still this is there? Matt on Hey, Jackie, can you hear me? This is Matt on for Selvine. Yes, we can hear you perfectly. Okay, great. Um, so Daiichi is expected to share full data from the phase three Tropion Lung 1 study uh, later this year. Could you guys just share what you're focused on from a competitive standpoint and then in terms of read-through to Tridelvi? Thank you. Sure. Um, uh, this is Murdad. Thanks for the question. So as you know, uh, our, our program is um, uh, relatively broad and, and uh, pushing forward in lung cancer as well. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be presenting our frontline data um, in Evoco 2, preliminary frontline data from the Evoco 2 study. Um, and I think that, that will help um, provide uh, everyone sort of uh, benchmarking in terms of, uh, in terms of how uh, Trudelby is doing in, in that setting. And then uh, what we'll be looking for, I think, is consistent with what our belief is for, um, for Tridelvi in the second line, which is, look, the, the patients in second line um, are sicker. They tend to have uh, – they're more difficult to manage, and, and uh, uh, they're more uh, challenging in terms of uh, outcomes. So 
um, you know, we, we are hopeful that we will see um, a benefit in those patients in terms of uh, outcomes, particularly PFS and OS. So, um, you know, we, we, we will keep ourselves, you know, keep you updated on the progress of the Evoca 1 study in the second line as well. Um, and uh, we're, we're pretty confident that we'll um, be, you know, in uh, where we want to be. Our underlying hypothesis remains that we will have comparable efficacy and that we will have um, a better tolerability profile with, uh, with Tridelvi. Um, so we're, we're very confident with where we're headed. Thank you. Sierra, may we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Colin Bristow with UBS. Please proceed. Hey, good afternoon and congrats on the quarter. Um, so the, the Trevian Bristow one trial is expected to read out in the near term. I, I'm just curious on you, to get your thoughts really on, on how you view this from a sort of competitive threat standpoint. Thank you. I think we may just have answered that question. Um, no, in breath. Oh, in breath. Sorry, sorry. sorry. So, one. Um, so, so maybe I'll, I'll yeah, pick it up. Um, so, thanks for the question, Colin. Um, we are we have been expecting um, that data. We're also um, very pleased with what we've seen thus far with Tradelvi, and I think that's the, the piece that's important here. I think Tradelvi's positioning in the marketplace, both in metastatic triple negative breast cancer and second line, as the standard of care in that setting. Um, is very well established with uh, an opportunity to continue to make sure people move up lines of therapy because there's still usage in the third, fourth line setting when, you know, there's still an opportunity to displace chemotherapies. I think as we've seen with other ADCs in the breast cancer market, I think it does, it's really helped the awareness of the benefits of ADCs and with Tradelvi's overall survival, both in triple negative breast cancer as well as in um, HR positive, HER2 negative, I, I do think it sets up Tradelvi incredibly well. And we've seen also ADC sequencing, um, either from in HER2 to Tradelvi or Tradelvi to in HER2. Um, I think as a third ADC comes to market, I think it might be a little bit more challenging in light of some of the positioning that's already there. But I do think for patients, this is a great thing. Um, I also think the safety profile that Murdad mentioned just a little bit earlier is also something to consider when you think about a safety profile with Tridelvi where um, you're looking at, you know, neutropenia and diarrhea, which are very much in line with other chemotherapies already on the marketplace. So, so physicians are very um, confident in how to treat versus bringing in something like ILD is going to be a little bit more concerning. So. Um, more to come, and I guess we wait to see the data, but uh, um, today, in the field today, I think Tridelvi is definitely making a difference for these patients. Murdad, did you want to add anything? No, I think you hit it all. Thank you, Joanna. Sierra, may we have our next question, please? Our next question comes from Evan Siegerman with BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed. Kyle, thanks. Thank you so much for taking my question. With, I believe it's the third anniversary of the Amigomedics deal nearing us. Can you walk us through how you look, you know, look forward to BD? Sure. Um, you digested this asset. Are you looking at oncology, inflammation elsewhere? Thank you. Yeah, Andy, do you want to start with that? Sure. Hi, Evan. Thank you for the question. Um, look, I'd say um, we continue to be very active in BD, as you'd expect, across both Gilead and Kite. Um, and that's across all of our areas of focus. So again, oncology, inflammation, and virology. As we've said before, there are fewer virology opportunities externally. We have an incredibly robust pipeline and extraordinary research group. We're building out our research groups at Kite and at Gilead and oncology and inflammation. We're excited about the progress that we're making there. We're still going to be active in the outside. Um, that being said, what you should expect over the next five years is different than what you saw over the last five years. So using immunomedics as an example, um, that's a deal that we continue to be very excited about. You've heard all the excitement about Tradelvi and where we are today with the franchise, where we see it going. Um, but that was a unique point in time where we really needed an anchor molecule to build our oncology business around. We will continue to look at uh, commercial assets, but you should expect consistent with what you saw last year, that our focus is predominantly on ordinary course partnerships and smaller acquisitions. Again, we will be opportunistic. We will look for ways to build our franchise and to create value for shareholders, but that's the base case expectation. Thank Thanks. you. May we have our next question, Sierra? 
Our next question comes from Joe Catanzaro with Piper Sandler. Please proceed. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks so much for taking my question. I actually had a question on the Zenthera acquisition and just wondering if you could share your thoughts around the plans and timelines for their PARP1 selective inhibitor and whether in the future there's opportunity to potentially combine it with Trodelvi given some preclinical data that supports that, uh, that approach. Thanks. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. We're we're moving uh, forward aggressively. I'm not sure we've disclosed the timelines yet, but we're moving uh, forward aggressively uh, with our efforts to move that program into the clinic. And um, as you say, I, I think a key uh, potential for the that PARP inhibitor is in combination with Tridelvi and and uh, combining those two agents to um, hopefully bring better outcomes to patients. So. Um, We'll we'll uh, we'll update as we go along. I think uh, things are things are progressing very nicely there, though. Sierra, our next, our next question, question. Our next question comes from Mohit Bonzel with Wells Fargo. Please proceed. Great, thank you very much for taking my question and welcome and congrats, Cindy, on your new role. Uh, maybe if I can ask a question to Andy uh, regarding. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of clinical trials going on uh, in oncology, especially. How should we think about the operating margin uh, evaluation from here? Uh, if I take out the one-time items as well as IPRND, it seems like about 45% in the first half of the year. Is that a good, uh, good number, good proxy to go with, or how should we think about it in the next few years? Hi, Mohi. Thanks. Thanks for the question. This is an important, an important point. Um, you know, what we said and, and we continue to believe is we have an exceptionally strong business with a lot of leverage, a highly efficient structure, a lot of leverage in our model. We've historically had industry leading operating margins, and we certainly expect to have that in the future. We're also have said and, and acknowledged that we're at a unique point in time as we've built out both our R&D portfolio and our sales and marketing team with the, the move into oncology. Um, where our expenses have increased in the short run, and we expect over the coming years for the expense, the expense increases to moderate, and we expect that you'll continue to see the strong growth that you've seen in our base business the last couple of years. So, you know, again, this is kind of uh, our strategy playing out where you see the, the extraordinary progress in the base business growth uh, last year, certainly through this year. You see that with the raised guidance for the base business. We expect to carry that momentum going forward. Of course, we don't provide long-term guidance. Um, and we, as we've highlighted, have 21 late-stage uh, phase three clinical studies underway. We will get to a point over the, the coming quarters and years where our expense growth moderates, and you should see a lot of that carry to the bottom line. So, um, and I think the way that you characterize the operating margin in the, in the second quarter is, is entirely consistent with the way that I see it. Um, and we don't provide long-term guidance beyond saying that we expect to have a top-tier operating margin um, going forward, and we think we're in a great place to achieve that goal. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for one last question, Sierra. Our last question today comes from Simon Baker with Redburn. Please proceed. Thanks for taking my question. Um, given the uh, recent developments uh, within the CAR-T space, in non-oncology indications such as lupus. I was just interested to know what your perspectives are on the strategic, clinical, and commercial opportunities for cell therapy outside oncology. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for the question, Simon. Um, similar to you, we are very intrigued also by the data that we're seeing in spaces like autoimmune disease and lupus, and it's something of great interest to us. Um, we have established ourselves in oncology, certainly, and expanded into multiple myeloma with the Arcelix collaboration, and we are also looking at autoimmune disease going forward. Terrific. So this is Dan. Uh, I just want to close this call by thanking you all for joining and maybe just relay some of the enthusiasm of both the team here in the room and the colleagues um, throughout Gilead and Kite. You know, we're really seeing continued positive momentum, and this is just another quarter of that related to our strategy that we set out several years ago. I mean, the first thing is the business is performing well and on a consistent basis. This is our seventh consecutive quarter of year-on-year -year growth for our business, excluding Beclery. 
Um, secondly, you know, we're much further ahead than we expected to be with our pipeline delivery. Now we have now 64 ongoing clinical programs, 21 in phase three, and that you saw that in the news flow for the second quarter. And then finally, we have a lot to look forward to um, in the second half of the year and beyond. Uh, we're particularly excited about the potential to transform beyond the diseases that we're helping patients with today in lung cancer and continuing to help the epidemic for HIV and, and the epidemic for HIV. So I just want to take this opportunity on behalf of all of us to thank you for joining. As usual, if you have questions that we haven't been able to handle here today, please get in touch with Jackie and the IR team, and we're more than happy to support you. Thank you, everybody, and thanks for joining today. That will conclude today's conference call. Thank you all for your participation. You may now disconnect.